I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. Today I speak with Mandy Birch. Mandy is a hugely accomplished person with a background that is impressive in breadth. Air Force Academy, distinguished military career, experience in the field, brilliant engineering studies, entrepreneur, and also depth with very senior leadership experience of large cohorts under situations of uh, crises, successful complex change management, deep literacy in quantum computing. But it's Mandy's wisdom that I'm drawn to the most her composure under stress, her com confidence in going against the grain, and her ability to think both in the present and always a few steps ahead. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So maybe a good place to start is, I'd, I'd love to ask you, Mandy, if, if you could um, paint a bit of, of a picture about um, how it was like growing up, where you grew up, um, what was your family environment and what were your uh, what were you thinking about as a um, as a child um, uh, in Indiana well as you said I grew up in rural Indiana well known for farming country and really an amazing place to grow up where I lived out in the country and could get out of my house and go explore in the woods and uh, spend time in nature really almost every day and I grew up in a home that I had a really loving family. I had fantastic role models in my parents. I didn't know we weren't rich until later in life uh, because I felt like I just had um, everything that was important in life by having parents that, that loved me and took care of me. I took a lot of inspiration from my dad. He's an auto mechanic, but probably the one of the best educated people I, I know. He has a high school diploma, but uh, I took a note from him. I remember him reading encyclopedias when I was young, and as soon as I could read, I also wanted to read encyclopedias and anything I could get my hands on. So I cultivated that love of learning and also just a love of all things mechanical growing up uh, with my dad. Um, my family also, ha I have a special needs sister. I'm the oldest of four kids and I have a special needs sister in that early responsibility, early understanding that things were different in my family, watching her suffer, recognizing that life can never be taken for granted when you're eight years old is a big responsibility and being able to help out my family with challenges um, as my parents spent a lot of time investing in her care. And um, I felt super responsible as a very young person. Um, yeah. But I also grew up, you know, with my mom. She was a stay-at-home mom and uh, spent a lot of time reassuring, loving, and, and building us kids up. So grew up in an amazing environment. You, you mentioned you realized from an early age that things could be different. Can you, can you share a bit more about what you meant by that? Sure. When you have a special needs person in your family, um, I can just give small examples, but sometimes embarrassing things happen, you know, if uh, your, your sister throws a temper tantrum, for instance, but looks like she should be more of an adult, you, you learn how to adapt and not worry so much about what other people think. I do remember experiences in the community where people didn't understand uh, why why she couldn't behave, and, and that was a challenge. Um, I just remember being hyper aware of the fragility of life. Uh, she has epilepsy as one of her challenges that she faced, and, and so she was in the hospital a lot, even as a child, so just realizing that our health, nothing, not taking anything uh, for granted, um, and then just needing to rely on community to help us out a lot. You know, we were we were a family that, um, you know, four kids wasn't so common. And so when mom and dad had to be off at the hospital or things like that, being able to find somebody in the care in the community that could come and, and take care of us, you know, you, you realized right away that you just really weren't the same as other families. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I love your your anecdote about your your father, where where you was you you were saying that he he was not um, educated in the formal sense, but you called him the best educated person, and you you spent time with with him discovering the world through atlas and, and and encyclopedia can you share a bit more about that because it's 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 fascinating for me that even though you you grew up in a very uh, kind of a local environment you you're you were already drawn to to the wider world uh th through through your dad and through these books oh absolutely and i found myself on these adventures and uh, reading books i would take them outside and, and and go read you know climb a tree and go read in the tree or go sit down by the creek and and read a book and uh, I felt like I was exploring the world and I felt like I could escape some of the challenges of that, that I faced in my childhood as well, just by spending time um, outdoors and, and escaping uh, with these adventures that other people were, you know, the, the stories of other people. And I think that's where I really got this desire to want to travel, to want to see the world. You read about it and you just become intrigued. I remember, you know, one of the early things I did as I started learning about different countries, I, I wanted a pen pal so that I could start connecting with <laughs> the world. And, you know, I, again, I wasn't from a family of means. We didn't travel a lot at all. I had never even flown on an airplane until I went away to university. So, um, I just found this love and enjoyment of the world, uh, even without being able to get out and travel. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned to me that occasionally you were getting exchange students coming to your school, and that was that was also a way a way for you to kind of connect with uh, with this uh, uh, passion of yours to explore the world. It was, yeah. I I, I always um, was the first one to try to befriend those who who were on an exchange <laughs> program, and you know I'm still in touch with some of those folks today, and I've gone to visit them in in the places that they live. And uh, again, I, I I think just uh, find you know finding a challenge. I, I think growing up, my the, the the other kids that were my peers they didn't necessarily have the same life experiences as me. So I, I think I felt like an old soul pretty early in terms of responsibility. <laughs> so I had challenges sometimes connecting and my family also um, moved when I was young and I found that to be a very traumatic experience too because as an introvert, I always had challenges making friends and then the friends that I make are very deep friendships. So I had challenges there and I think basically through my own experiences, I became really empathetic to somebody away from home, away from a place that, that, that they fit in and, and to try to find belonging in a new environment. I became very aware of that even as, you know, a child and had that, that desire to want to reach out and connect with other people as well. You said you were very interested in, in, in discovering the world and did, did you have a dream already start taking shape or like, like, because you mentioned at the, at the time it was through books, uh, through your imagination, through these contacts with uh, exchange students. How did your your kind of early direction in terms of education, how, how did that take shape? Well, it evolved over time. I think observing my sister, one of the first dreams I had was to be a doctor because I really wanted to be able to help people. And then I realized I didn't necessarily have the strength of heart to do that, to watch suffering day in and day out. Um, I wasn't sure if that was going to be a great career path for me. So I kind of moved on to other things. And I was really fortunate in my high school. We didn't have any of the advanced classes like people who grow up in the city have. Um, and, you know, nobody in my community were engineers or those kinds of professions. But I had uh, lots of teachers that recognized gifts and talents and provided me extra outside opportunities to learn and grow. I had a chemistry teacher that would take me to these events uh, at a college that was over an hour away to be able to experience um, learning and, and chemistry and other classes that weren't necessarily offered at my high school. I had math teachers that put um, opportunities to learn more math in front of me and let me do some learning at my own pace and, and cultivated thoughts. And so between that and just watching my dad and being interested by all, all things mechanical, it became pretty clear to me that I was interested in engineering because I really enjoyed the math. But more importantly, I really in, enjoyed 
building things and and making things. Um, I did that outside, you know, building tree tree houses and, you know, worked on my car with my dad and and those sort of things. So I really knew that I wanted to to build things. And, and you know, that's really blossomed and grown. Of course, you build things as, as an engineer, but I realized that I'm just more of a creator and a builder at heart. And engineering is one way to do to do those things um but i think also just this global perspective and i i i knew early on that there was a big world out there that the sphere of people that i had contact with growing up was pretty limited in comparison to you know the big wide world out there and i had always i had a hypothesis that by having an opportunity to expand my connections and to go to new places that I would find opportunities for belonging and find other people with interests similar to mine. And um, I was a swimmer and I got recruited to go to the U.S. Air Force Academy, which is a essentially a full ride scholarship and then military service afterwards. And I had been recruited for swimming a few places that's common in the U.S. to that sports scholarships are much more accessible than academic scholarships. And I was just concerned that how would I ever get an education? I, you know, my family, nobody had gone to college. I really didn't know a lot about that. So when this opportunity came to go to the Air Force Academy, I knew people in the military had opportunities to travel. I took the opportunity and uh, went to the Air Force Academy at age 17. And how how was that experience like? Well, it was really tough. I was just thinking uh, last week was the 30-year anniversary of me taking off on this new journey in life. And that was a time before we had cell phones. We didn't have email. The primary method of communicating was by letter. And I was extremely close to my family of origin, so that was really challenging to feel so isolated from everybody that you had known and and cared about and you know by the time that I'd gone through the basic training phase of military service uh, and entered into the academics that you could make phone calls you could wait in line for a couple hours on the weekend and and spend 30 minutes on the phone connecting with your family but uh, I got really homesick. I was fortunate. My mom wrote me a letter every day, and I so looked forward to walking down to the mailroom and getting a note of encouragement and 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 notes wow. about home. But yeah, I was surprised by how homesick I got. Um, I mean, I, I made new friends quickly. You go through an experience like basic military training, and you very quickly make new friends. You have to help each other out. You you know, people come from all kinds of different backgrounds, and you come together and you overcome challenges and difficulties. To together so I, I was connecting there but I, I miss my family greatly and where was the academy actually it's in Colorado Springs Colorado so it's at the base right. of the, the Rocky Mountains and I took a lot of inspiration from being able to walk out a lot of times at the end of a of, of a difficult day I would run up into the mountains which were right you know right next door to the academy and I would look down on the academy and I would tell myself look how small that is you can go back down there <laughs> get in the game and, and you can do what you need to do so beautiful inspirational place and and at some point you you, you had an opportunity also to to learn French and then go to France for um, for um, uh, an, an exchange I believe that's right I had a I had a teacher um, for French at the Air Force Academy. She was a captain, a military officer, and I took French my freshman year. And she told me that, you know, she, she had done this exchange program with the French Air Force Academy. At the, at the time, it was the only international exchange program that they had at the Air Force Academy. And it was a semester-long program. And she just told her stories um, about uh, being able to go on that exchange program. And I got inspired when I was a freshman, that I that was something that I really wanted to do. And, and that was uh, my senior year, I got to, to go do that. Um, it was just amazing experience, uh, opened again, just another step that opened the entire world to me, finding new cultures, new sense of belonging and, and shared interests. Um, there were shocking moments as well. Like I remember, being in formation one day, all everybody was intrigued. So, so there, it's almost all men anyway. And so, to be a female and an American, I had a lot of extra attention. I, I remember 
one of the funny stories is we were in for formation one day and um the an officer at the academy that it was supposed to be the the cadre for us um announced that um american women should not wear pantyhose because they wanted to see our legs right so i mean just very shocking kinds of <laughs> <laughs> experiences um and I, I i i take that lighthearted i mean i yes uh looking back on it like that's something that probably should not have been said um, but at the time, it was just, you know, an interesting, I think I, I had a very open mind, got all kinds of new experiences, um, fl- uh, learned to fly, uh, got, got to parachute, uh, do equipment jumps, did uh, survival training uh, with the French military as well. And I think that really just opened up this love uh, of of learning things from other cultures. And I think many G-mappers probably identify this with us. Um, it's always hard to come home when you've had an amazing experience like that because you want the best of both worlds. You've picked up new things, you know, in France, uh, uh, great meals, uh, different ways of connecting deeply with people, um, great wine, you know, these sorts of things. And in, in, in you want to, and pausing for dinner every night and not eating while you're walking, those, those kind of things, you want to bring them back and have the best of both worlds. But the people around you, they just, uh, they haven't experienced that, right? So it's it's hard to have the best of both worlds after you've experienced different worlds. But it, but it, it, it sounds that, I mean, if, if I pause for a second and, and try to, to just imagine like how kind of out of your environment you must have felt like as, as a as a as a young woman from indiana parachuted int- literally into this this um, air force environment and then into france as uh, like and and france um so i'm i'm half french but um it, it's it's not always an environment that's the most kind of tolerant of of non-french speakers um so i was just wondering how you but but li- listening to your story it sounds like even though you were very out of your environment you you still felt very kind of um uh, able to connect and and and, uh, and 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 you got a lot of energy out of out of that and didn't feel like a like an outcast I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about that because I think it's worth pausing there for a second well absolutely and I actually think it comes down to individuals I had fantastic roommates uh, one of one of my roommates we I mean we're still really close friends today uh, went to spend my vacation with her last year. So I, I think, you know, it's about individuals reaching out, but it was a real shock. I, I remember actually, it was pretty traumatic when I first moved there. I had only taken three years of French in college. So I was wow. not, I was not fluent in French by any stretch of the imagination. And I found it challenging because I, I, I felt stupid. You know, sometimes people would talk louder mm. or I, I felt like there was a perception that I was just not very smart, which was difficult for me because I, you know, I'm an engineer, I, I, I'm analytical, I'm logical, you know, I'm not a stupid person. Um, so I remember some of those experiences um, and, and feeling, you know, less than. I, I remember, um, well, one advantage is that I was studying engineering, so the numbers are easier. My history class was very difficult because I had to write papers, you know, and those sort of things, and that, that was much more difficult. But engineering, you, you can work the problems. And I actually remember um, one of the tests, I got a very high score, the highest score of, you know, French at, at the academy, French, American, didn't matter. I got the highest score on the test, and the teacher afterwards confronted me um, about uh, and asked me if I had cheated on the test because. <laughs> Because there was just this perception that I wasn't very smart because I wasn't able to communicate well. Um, So that was really difficult. But then I I found that there were a number of people, you know, know, most of the folks there spoke spoke English. And so my roommate, she was just fascinated with English. So she just was so patient and compassionate. She always allowed me the time to formulate my thoughts and words and love listening and interacting with me. So I think... You know, individuals make a huge difference in that. And then I think also just this military environment, you go through difficult things together. I mean, we 
where you go through survival school together, they drop you off in the woods uh, with a chicken and uh, basically (laughs) one meal ready to eat, right? And you spend all this time (laughs) trying to navigating and, and, you know, people are chasing you and trying to capture you and those sorts of um, intense training, uh, parachuting. I mean, it's fun, but it's also intense and a little bit scary. So you go through (laughs) these experiences together and you find, you know, you have these shared experiences, shared emotions that uh, connect you. So that's how I found myself connecting with people. And it, it sounds like there's also a thread running through your life about uh, service, actually. And, and it's, a, it's a word you use that a lot. C- can you share a little bit like what role that played as well in your early life and, and how did that manifest itself? Yeah, I, I do think about that from a very early age. And, um, you know, I already mentioned my sister and feeling a sense of responsibility at home as a child. And, you know, I think that for that idea of service really first started there. Like, I, you know, I'm the oldest, I'm responsible to to serve my family and, and help take care of them. And then my very first job was as a as a lifeguard. And I thought of it as an opportunity to to serve and, you know, take care of people. I was a swimmer and I enjoyed being in the water and I, you know, it was, it was something that I was proud of. It was a public service. I was hired by the county to, to work at the pool. So public uh, hired by the, uh, by a government entity and then going off to the Air Force Academy, that is, you know, obviously uh, a place where you talk a lot about service. Service before self is one of the core values of, of the U.S. Air Force. And, and that just resonated with me and to be surrounded by, you know, a couple thousand other people who are also have that desire to serve. Um, it's uh, definitely been an important thread in my life. When you came back from uh, from France, so you got back into the the academy, and did you did you have in mind what what uh, where you wanted to take your your life through the uh, route of the military, or did did you want to? Was that a, a a channel for you to access education? Uh, did you already have a a view of what you wanted to? to do later on? I mean, I initially went to the Air Force Academy because I was really excited about the education. It was It's one of the best engineering school, schools in the world. So to have the opportunity to go there and study engineering, I, I was really excited about that opportunity. I, I do remember several people along the way trying to convince me that I wanted to be a pilot because that's the penultimate job oh, well. in the Air Force. <laughs> and I was not interested. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed flying and I love that experience, but I didn't imagine myself doing that professionally. Um, and so upon graduation, we get an assignment. I was assigned as an engineer. I was quite excited about that. Um, actually, my first assignment was the opportunity to go off to grad school and get a master's degree at MIT. So I re- I took advantage. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a master's degree when I went to college, actually. I knew that there was a th- <laughs> such a thing as a PhD, but I didn't wow. know about these levels of education. But I went a fellowship and National Science Foundation fellowship and the Air Force allowed me for my first two years as a lieutenant to to go to school there. So, um, I, you know, I, I definitely didn't imagine spending a lifetime in the Air Force. If you would have asked me when I graduated, I would have said, oh, you know, I'll probably spend five years serving. It sounds amazing. And then I'll probably go to Silicon Valley or do some other yeah. sort of engineering work, start a company. I was always interested in entrepreneurship. Um, so I didn't imagine myself uh you know, deciding to serve this long, but honestly, I, I just fell in love with the, with the idea of serving and the people that I served alongside the sense of community and camaraderie, um, was an amazing experience. And I, you know, I just, one step after another, I kept getting new assignments and moving around and I've just, I just stayed. Is it okay to ask you to share uh, some of the the missions that that you were involved in? Let's, some of those that because you 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 served quite a bit of time um, internationally as well. Um, like if you can give us a bit of a flavor of what you were what what you were doing and uh, some of the missions that were that were that really stuck stuck with you. Sure, I've definitely had a variety of experiences in the Air Force. I started out as a research and development engineer, and I was assigned to the research lab doing navigation and control systems. I was working on drones back in the 90s before that was the thing and working on biomimetic uh, technology, thinking about how a bee's eye works and how you can leverage that for to design systems. So, you know, nature inspired engineering. I, I always enjoyed that. 
Uh, and then I, I married a fighter pilot, and he could only go to a couple of bases with the airplane that he was flying. So I switched to a different kind of engineering. I switched over to civil engineering. So I was responsible for all the infrastructure to base, the runways, the water, the electricity, the facilities, and then also all the emergency services like the fire department, the explosive ordnance disposal, um, and then other types of emergency preparedness stuff. Uh, so I spent many years doing that, and what I really enjoyed about that was so different. The research lab, I, I definitely got to use my engineering sk skills, and I was fascinated by that, but I also felt like I had been trained as a leader, and I didn't have a lot of opportunity for leadership. I was working mostly as, as an individual with teams, but not leading teams, and when I moved to civil engineering, there's, I mean, it's like... Um, you know, it's like running a small city. So you have lots of diverse kinds of people with different skills on your team. Um, I had never worked with unions before. I had officers. I had enlisted. I had civilians. I had all kinds of people on different career tracks in life. And you know, it was pretty quickly thrust into leadership positions of a couple hundred people, very diverse teams uh, where, you know, I, I couldn't necessarily go out and do their job if I had to at the end of the day, because they were very skilled craftspeople. And um, I really love that opportunity to kind of grow my leadership capabilities. And that then propelled me into larger and larger opportunities to lead groups of a couple thousand people scattered in some cases across 27 countries. Um, but uh, lots of opportunities to travel uh, within the U.S. and abroad. One of the most memorable assignments was actually my opportunity to go serve in Chad. They needed um, a U.S. officer to establish a liaison relationship with the French at Operation Barkhane, and then also to lead a multinational Cell supporting the multinational joint task force for the Lake Chad Basin Commission and 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 uh, supporting them in their counter Boko Haram fight um, around the Lake Chad Basin area. I mean, just to be able to lead a multinational team, I had about two dozen people from seven different countries. We none of us all spoke the same language, so all of our meetings were both in French and English. Um, and, wow. you know, just the amount of time invested to get everybody on the same page from different backgrounds and experiences. So that was, you know, half of my job. And then the other half was integrating with the, the French military and um, building capabilities together and in, in support um, from the U.S. and integrating that into the operations there across the Sahara and Sahel. Uh, I mean, I developed deep friendships that you know, it's just an unparalleled professional experience to be able to to have that opportunity. Maybe it's worth asking you to expand a little bit on on the on the environment uh, in Chad's and what the mission was uh, and and what you felt in connection to the objectives uh, there. Because I think I think quite a lot of our GMAP uh, friends uh, may not be so familiar with the region and 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 what what that kind of counterterrorism against Boko Haram, what that actually meant on the on the ground. And um, just curious as well, as, because it's also a very, it's an environment that is um, <clears throat> primarily, the, the main activity is farming and herding, which which is actually, a, a, an, an, um, I'd say, an, an area that you're familiar with from a, from a kind of ecosystem perspective. And just keen to, to hear a bit your reflections on, on, on that, that overall uh, kind of co context and conflict. Sure. So the Lake Chad area has just had the unfortunate experience of a collision of challenges with an environmental crisis and the lake drying up uh, at the borders of all of these countries. It has significantly changed patterns of life in the area, which has brought about more and more opportunities for, for conflict. Um, so the Lake Chad Basin Commission has been a longstanding organization. It was, you know, established in the in the mid 20th century actually did a GMAT paper on it having no idea that it would eventually be assigned to the Lake Chad area I did uh, the oh, negotiations okay. class <laughs> I actually did a, a mock negotiation with, uh, the, with the Lake Chad Basin Commission so uh, anyways the organization has for a long time worked towards managing the and stewarding the environmental resources that that are there including the water most importantly um, and then 
as other challenges have cropped up in the region, the organization has tried to take on a, a bit of a broader role in helping to provide security in the area. So the multinational joint task force then was composed of people from Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, and, and then Benin as well. Um, but the situation really around Lake Chad, particularly in the Nigeria, well, the, the tri-border region there in the north, um, had become quite difficult. And the prosperity of some of the areas of the south of Nigeria, in contrast, uh, in, in more the Christian areas of Nigeria, and then the contrast of that with the um, northern populations that did not have the same types of resources and prosperity, especially with the diminishment of Lake Chad, um, started to cause lots of different patterns of migration, as you mentioned, with people who had traditionally been herds uh, herdsmen now are migrating to areas that had traditionally been farming areas and obviously uh, already a stressed area and you have that type of conflict, it causes lots of problems. And really Boko Haram um, cropped up after some, you know, really just a, a failure of governance, to put it frankly, and, and to take care of people in the region. And um, there was a, the police had stopped um, a funeral procession that ultimately ended up in, in a death uh, of a person. And so um, Boko Haram was kind of that reaction to, to a failure of governance. And, uh, you know, then, then um, the factions, they, they split into a couple of different factions um, and some of them aligned with um, the broader ISIS groups um, and then were actually cut off from ISIS because they were far too brutal uh, for that organization. So that gives you an idea to that was just to build up to the idea of what things look like on the ground. The, the situation mm -hmm. was terrible, brutal. Um, you know, there's there's the kidnappings, um, and then there's um, just sheer terrorism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the mission that I was a part of was um, a mission established. I mean, the French were first there um, in the Sahel and Sahara because of their responsibilities to and their security agreements with those countries. And um, of course, the challenges in Nigeria started to spill over into some of the other areas that the French were responsible for as well. And the French uh, built uh, a coalition with the UK and the US to try to help manage the security situation to, to be a support uh, to the locals who were managing the situation. So the cell that I led in particular, uh, we were there to be a liaison to better understand the challenges that the military was facing. And I, I mean, the challenges were profound. I talked about the meetings that we had in our little cell, but as the multinational joint task force got together and they worked on planning, you have people from lots of different cultures. Um, so we didn't even have French and English as the common language. There were lots of tribal languages. So these military forces, they would try to try to work and, and plan together. And it was really a challenge. Um, so just helping them through, like what were the challenges that they were facing, helping us, you know, helping us to get an understanding so that we could support them with different capabilities in it was everything from, you know, kind of logistics planning and um, providing um, boat safety training. I mean, there were all kinds of different things where um, we were able to come alongside. The, the, we weren't involved in directly in any type of, of the security on the ground. We were there supporting yeah. those and, and trying to provide capacity, build the capacity of the locals to be able to take care of the situation in their region. I'd like to to go back to um, situations where you were um, in 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 leadership leadership roles, leading very large um, groups of people. Are there a particular anecdote that that stands out, or a uh, event that stands out where where these these leadership skills were 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 tested? Um, and and um, because I imagine it was still very much a, a male dominated environment. Um, and, and I just was was keen if you could maybe maybe share some of these um, moments of of kind of um, crisis leadership and and um, and what what you learn from from them as well. Mm -hmm. Give us a flavor a bit because it sounds also fascinating. You described it as being almost like the mayor of a city with uh, hugely complex groups of diverse expertise, uh, diverse people, different levels. 
um, and, and that, that must have been uniquely challenging to, to, to manage, especially under, under crisis. I, one of the experiences I remember very well was actually during GMAP. I wasn't sure if I would be able to finish GMAP because in the middle of it, this was in 2014, and the situation in Iraq and Syria started falling apart um, quickly. And I was uh, asked to come in for my reserve job to be able to fill in at the Air Force's Central Command Headquarters, uh, which is actually down in South Carolina. But that's kind of the nerve center for all the Air Forces throughout the the Middle East and parts of Africa uh, as well. And so my role there was really about installations and, and contracting. So my roles before had been working at individual installations and, and leading teams there, individual in installations. And then my, my job at this location was really to take a broader picture overall, doing the planning, theater level kind of planning, where the strategic locations, where we have to have um, capabilities, you know, for, for the Air Force, you always have to have a runway. And so that's a, a big, uh, that's a big footprint when you need uh, to have a runway. So we took care of all the installations and capabilities there. So um, I remember being in this crisis planning where, you know, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And we went into this, we call it, we actually call it crisis planning. There's, uh, you know, documents and doctrine around and around how this works but we went into this three-week period where we worked every single day and I didn't have backup I was called in as a reservist because there was a vacancy that that, that needed to be filled and and there was you know I didn't have another person with the clearance or the background experience that I, that I had so I had to be at every meeting we were meeting every four hours um, around oh. the clock and so I would basically go to the meeting get a situation update um, take the critical notes back, try to get those out to my team so somebody could work them. I would try to catch an hour of sleep and then wake back up so that I could re-engage with the team to figure out where we were uh, so that I could take the information back to wow. to the next meeting. And this went on for, for almost three weeks at this pace. And I just remember, you know, watching the situation unfold at the time, the, um, Negotiations were going on with Iran as well uh, for for their nuclear capabilities. So, you know, just tensions all over the world. And um, I remember how tired we were. And I remember, you know, maybe everybody was not on their best behavior. And I remember having mm. a moment where I just had a meltdown. I was I was so tired and, and someone misbehaved. They were basically making fun of, of, of a situation that was quite a serious situation. And yeah. um I just felt like I had to draw the line and I basically st stood up and I'm like, this has to stop, right? Like we, this is a serious situation and we have to, we have to respect it. We don't have sleep, right? Like we can't keep up like this. Um, and, and that's enough. Right. And, um, it changed the tone of the room, but you know, what I remember most about that is after I kind of had that moment where I drew the line and said, this is not acceptable. This is war. This is difficult. We have, you know, we have to take this seriously. Um, I remember a couple of guys coming up to me afterwards and say, and thanking me, you know, they, they had also felt uncomfortable and, and they thanked me for, for taking a stand. And, you know, I, I guess I've thought a lot about that conversation because, um, they just implied that I was in a better position to do that than any of them. And what I've realized is that the men, there's so much that there's, there's a different kind of peer pressure in fitting in, you know, when I'm the only woman around the table, I'm already different. And so if my behavior, I, I have less peer pressure because I, I'm already different. So my behavior can be different as well, which is, can be a source of empowerment. And I realize that, you know, that's a role that is important to play when you have a voice and can speak up and you are the person that uh, is already different. There's less at, at stake. There's less at risk for you to be able to, to, to step up. So while I've had moments of challenge uh, being the only woman around the table, there's also been moments where I've realized how critically important it is. And I felt, you know, really encouraged to know that I can have a special role to play and that other people appreciate yeah. it. It's, it sounds like a really, uh, really powerful lesson um, here that um, if I re reflect on the conversation that, that, that we've been having is you, you, you've always been a little bit outside of your comfort zone and in a different environment. Uh, but you, you, that you, you didn't let that, that environment somehow force you and, and conform you or, or set, put constraints on you 
to blend in with the others it's it's almost as if you realize that actually that although it's 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 you're constantly facing facing some kind of headwinds it also is a platform that gives you tremendous not only freedom but also uh, room to inspire others um and that that you've been able to to use even in situations of um extraordinarily high level of pressure in a crisis environment where you had no no sleep um i, I just it may, makes me wonder whether that's that's a lesson that you've been applying elsewhere or, or even maybe sharing with with other women or, or or other people in general actually because i can think i can think of men who may have different backgrounds who feel this peer pressure but um don't necessarily conceptualize their difference as a as a source of richness and freedom actually mm-hmm. no i i mean it's definitely something that's evolved over time i didn't i didn't have this sort of confidence or purpose in my earlier days in the military i think military is maybe one of the most extreme environments for pressure to fit in you know they they cut your hair the same you wear the same uniform you adopt the same values i mean there's a there is a lot of pressure uh to be uh, a lego block essentially and interchangeable yeah. uh, in the military and i think it's only as i've had opportunities I, i mean i had a real inflection point when i was deployed with the french military there in chad of recognizing like i was the only female senior officer i was the only american you know there there was I, i was the only a lot of things um and yet i brought something uh different that anybody else could bring and i that's a, you know i it's the first time i remember feeling so clearly how much i was valued for being different and if i were like everyone else I wouldn't be able to deliver the value that I was. Um and I think what makes that possible also is just having some of those really deep connections. You don't have to fit in with everybody. You don't have to belong with everybody, but to have a few key allies, a few close a few close friends to share the difficult moments with um and and to grow and to learn uh is critically important and I think with just a few people in your corner when you know you have a few people in your in your corner you have an identity that's anchored in 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 things other than your job you know it's it's who you are as a person and in your your friendships and relationships affirm who you are and and your values that make you who you are then it makes it much easier to go out and have courage and be bold in those difficult circumstances because you know that those moments don't define you they they have an opportunity to shape you and to exercise your gifts and talents but they that your identity is not at stake yeah and it's it's a theme that comes back quite a lot uh, in, in our conversation these these people that were there at crucial moments of your life and supported you whether it's at, when you were at the, at the high school or the air force academy or france or later i'm just cu- curious would, would you attribute that to to luck the chance that these people were there or was there something about you about your openness or your maybe willingness to 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 be vulnerable and ask for help that that made these people actually come to you or? yeah i do think it is about being vulnerable and asking for help you're right in all of these situations i was in a place where i needed help and to be able to initiate that initiate a friendship even when you're not sure what you can give back in return i think um you know has been really important and i also mentioned that i'm an introvert so i have uh i find i people don't usually believe me when i say that because when i'm around people i really enjoy the engagements but i am exhausted sometimes at the end of the day when i have that and and so i i think i really have this preference for having a few really deep close relationships rather than having a, you know a broad trying to go deep with so many people so i think that that kind of desire to have a few really close deep connections uh, has been something that allowed me to open up and be more vulnerable uh, and again provide that base that uh, of security that allows me to go out and take risks i'd like to maybe go to silicon valley and and ask you how you got into that when we met uh, for the first time you you were very involved in quantum computing and so you you've got i was was fascinated by how you straddled kind of this 
this world of deep tech uh, entrepreneurship, but still very rooted in in um, in, in the military. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear how you got into that, and if if you could share a little bit what 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 you've been what you've been doing there. Sure, I really you know from my early days of my career i knew how much i loved technology and my first job in the air force was just fantastic and being able to to be really close to the technology and then my career took a different turn where i was involved much more in leadership and management around engineering and, and certainly an engineering base but not the focus of of my my individual contributions was more around managing those sorts of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also had this international experience and I found in the military, I have these three domains that I love, uh, the engineering, the leadership, and the global aspect of things. And I always found that I was in one of those, maybe two, but never all three together. And so I just had this idea that I would feel, feel more whole instead of bouncing around to different things to experience them one at a time. I kept thinking, what if these could intersect? And that's really where I was drawn to GMAP and thinking, okay, so I have international experience. I don't necessarily have a credential. I don't necessarily have a vision for how it can all fit together. Um, so off I went to GMAP and one of our classmates uh, worked out in Silicon Valley and she kept encouraging me that, you know, Silicon Valley would definitely be the place for me. I was entrepreneurial. There would be plenty of opportunities for all three of these to come together and um, I ended up finding this military to tech transition program that was meant for veterans. They also they they work with underrepresented people or underselected uh, populations for coming into Silicon Valley for veterans, females, and uh, people of color. And I went through. I was one of the first cohorts to go through the program. And just became fascinated around the need for leadership in Silicon Valley. And mm. I think it makes sense upon reflection, people who are outstanding engineers aren't necessarily as interested in the, the human elements of, of, um, of leadership. Um, those two aren't always compatible. So I, I saw an opportunity for, to, to really make a, a, an important transition. And I, uh, found this role at uh, Rigetti Computing and was able to join. Unfortunately, I was deployed just six weeks after uh, arriving at my brand new job, which was not an ideal circumstance. Um, but anyway, it worked out. My employer was incredibly supportive of me and the, the opportunity to serve and be a part of that as well. And so uh, the last five years, well, it's been almost five years now, I've been working in quantum computing and it's just a technology that I am absolutely fascinated by um i can talk a little bit more if if you want me to about quantum computing because it's definitely where i'm going to be uh spending my focus over the next few years i'd, I'd love to hear you a little bit talk about quantum computing um but i think it, it would warrant a, a whole conversation on it on, it, on <laughs> its own um but but one area of it that i think would be would be interesting to to pause on is your reflections about that technology in relation to your global mindset where you you've been exposed to complex international challenges to threats to um, livelihoods um, to opportunities as well where technology can can do good and I'd love to ask you if you could um, kind of reflect a bit on quantum computing and the the opportunities that you are excited about and maybe the threats that you think we're not thinking about and that you'd like GMappers to maybe um, take away from, from this conversation. Well, one of the reasons that I'm so intrigued by this technology is I think it's um, a, a, a fundamental discovery in science that we're now understanding how to do engineering work with that could become the most powerful technology the world's ever known. I mean, I think in terms of understanding the fundamental laws of thermodynamics and we had the industrial revolution we started understanding electromagnetism and we had the digital revolution and i think we're going to see something similar with understanding the fundamentals of these uh, quantum properties and quantum physics and being able to apply that to a whole new 
um, set of opportunities. And, and some of the first uh, opportunities will be around having new types of computational power, which is really exciting and promising, thinking about being able to model and simulate um, materials, uh, pharmaceuticals, being able to find cures for diseases that are just absolutely too complex to find solutions to, you know, with a trial and error method and being able to do computational capability um, to find those solutions um, in terms of environmental work, uh, carbon capture, modeling climate and the weather. I mean, there's so many opportunities we're, we're going to see with the advent of quantum computing, which is, by the way, still not a mature technology. There's quantum computers that are up and running, but they're not better, faster, or cheaper uh, than classical computers yet. So we haven't had that big inflection point. And, you know, we don't know if that's three years away or 10 years away. Um, we know it's coming, but we don't know exactly when. And so when you think about this, you think about these amazing opportunities, but you know, technology itself is always absolutely neutral. When you put it into the hands of people, that's when it becomes good or bad. And mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about from the beginning of this technology, I think we have an opportunity to think differently about how we develop important technologies from the beginning. You know, we're, we're in such early stages. We need to have diverse stakeholders around the table now to think about what are the ways this technology can be used for good and for bad. And let's be real about it. I think that they're in the academic community. There is a real desire for ever, for knowledge to be open. And I think that's completely appropriate at the science level. And as you become closer to applied development work, I think that there is a point in time where you have to rally around shared values and make difficult decisions around uh, the capabilities of the technology when it comes to security as well. So I think really thinking through that, figuring out, you know, um, I, it, it, the quantum computing is fascinating because it is one of these industries, even the smallest startups are global from the beginning. And I don't think we've ever seen a technology sector emerge like this, where the footprint is global from the beginning. So thinking about how can we leverage that for good in the long run? How can we get people not just from banking, not just from government and security um, to critically important areas, but also from the philanthropic sector? And how do we you know, use this for good to drive investment, understand and drive investment um, for, for developing opportunities and fraud detection and other humanitarian capabilities. Map these onto the sustainable development goals because I look across the sustainable development goals and I can see an application of quantum computing across every single one of those. Those folks need to be at the table now as we're developing this technology. And I, I think uh, that there's a really rich opportunity to show the world a different way of evolving a technology. Great, thanks. Thanks very much. W one theme that I wanted to touch on a, a little bit is is your your reflections on leadership and 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 power. Having been in in senior leadership positions and having observed uh, good leadership, bad leadership, and how very often men can um, change when power. Uh, accrues to them or when they grab it uh, and, and of, of course we have quite a number of events around the world that, that show what, what, what happens when when power is concentrated in one essentially man um, I just would love to hear some of your reflections on how prepared you felt to to deal with um, like power abusing le leadership um, and how to maybe safeguard from from that I think this is a really important question, and I can say that in my formal education, I never had the opportunity to learn academic theories around uh, how power affects people. Uh, maybe a little bit in GMAP, we we did talk about power, but really how it um, how it influences people's thinking, how people change. Um, I recently read an article about how it actually power causes a chemical change in your brain that is similar hmm. to being under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Um, and it makes you okay, less sensitive to <laughs> what, you, what, you know, that being able to perceive um, the world around you and, and inputs. Um, so I thought deeply about this because I've seen some absolutely fabulous examples of leadership. And, and I've also 
worked under some leaders that are very difficult um, and that really are very self-centered. And I've seen, I mean, it's interesting for me to think, I've been doing some reading about this. I know we're going to talk about books uh, a little bit later too, but um, really just thinking about how you know, I've, I've seen this in my personal life and I've seen it in organizational life and, you know, this idea of narcissism or um, narcissistic tendencies, you know, how do, how do we deal with them and why are certain people or populations targets? Um, and I've come across some really interesting ideas um, on this, right? That the, the, the targets mm. of, of these types of difficult behaviors are, are typically people who are very accomplished uh, people who are compassionate, they've been through some sort of difficult situation and, and they and they've had someone love and care about them in their life. So they just think if this person is cared for enough, you know, the, they'll snap out of this. Um, they're, they're typically very analytical people um, that are targets because they find every reason to, you know, to excuse the behavior that we're seeing. Um, mm. And typically people with a really strong sense of responsibility, like, okay, what's my part in this? What, what do I need to do to change this situation? And so yeah. I have found myself, you know, struggling through some of these challenges and being in difficult in environments um, where there's kind of momentum towards you know, power dynamics. Um, I, I, I mean, I could just give you a couple of anecdotes. I remember one place where I was working and it was really challenging. And, you know, I, I had a, a conversation and I I sat down with my boss and said, like, I'm really struggling here. And, um, you know, do you have any recommendations for me? And he asked me if I watched Game of Thrones and he recommended that I watch it because, you know, hmm. women, uh, what happens to women is you get killed, raped or married off. And those are just the rules of power. Hmm. And I needed to get my mind around that. And I'd have to figure out how to chart my own way. Um, I remember asking wow. other leaders, oh. you know, I, I remember asking another leader when I was facing a, um, a couple of other just difficult dynamics at work, you know, um, um, basically somebody came in my office and asked if they could close the door. They had a very personal matter to discuss with me. And and they uh, they said, uh, my wife thinks we're having an affair. Should we? <laughs> And uh, I'm like, get out of my office, right? Like, so I'm asking my boss about this, you know, like, how do you, how do you navigate these kind of things? I, <laughs> I just remember getting the deer in the headlights look of like, I have, I have no idea, right? Like men don't experience these oh things, God. right? So I remember just feeling alone through some of these, you know, some of the, some of them are more, well, you know, there's different root causes for some of the challenges that I faced um, in my working life. But um, yeah, I've just, been, I've just been thinking about the importance of, um, you know, being able to take a stand, uh, where to set boundaries. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how leadership requires both heart and mind, right? Like I have worked for some brilliant leaders who are incredibly abusive. Um, and your mind, uh, you can't you can't lead with your mind alone. You know, you're going to grow this thick callus on your heart and, and you're not going to see the human needs. You can't lead with your heart alone because you're going to drown in your sorrow and you're, you know, you're going to be overcome by compassionate and you're not going to be able to survive without some of the the truth and reason so um you know i think a quality mind is only as good as the quality of the heart and 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 these are not alternatives or opposites and as leaders we have to really um you know take care of ourselves to develop both our hearts and our minds but i think that we have to create an environment where we create pressure on our leaders um to also develop a heart and mind um and you know i, I think that that's that's a difficult thing to do yeah, especially when you're you you have an inclination towards service uh, and selflessness. It's like how do you this concept of knowing your boundaries and setting your boundaries and being comfortable with that. It's it sounds like it's something that that you had to learn. Absolutely, and I I think you really only get better at that by practicing and exercising that muscle. I've had a lot of opportunity to experiment with where to put those boundaries, crisis leadership in particular, sometimes lack of sleep. Um, those can bring out the yeah. worst behaviors in people at times. So I think just exercising and experimenting with those things, realizing that, you know, when you set the boundaries and consequences, I mean, frankly, I, I've set boundaries and had 
really difficult consequences. I've lost really important mm -hmm. relationships. I've lost jobs over setting boundaries. But you know what I've learned through all of that is at the end of the day, I feel good about myself as a human for setting the boundaries that I did. And we bounce back, right? Like it feels awful yeah. in the moment when you're fired. It feels awful in the moment when a relationship is broken. But at the end of the day, you know, looking back, you survive, you, you move through the pain yeah. and by experiencing those things, you become stronger. Um, it's, yeah. it's a pruning and, you know, I, I don't wish these experiences on anyone, but I also wouldn't trade them for anything. They've made me who I am. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you, you learned these lessons relatively recently or in the last, in the last, uh, few, 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 few years. No, I, I think you're right. I think I, Earlier in my career, I tried to deal with belonging and, and fitting in and difficult behaviors by just performing. Um, and then I think I got to a breaking point where that wasn't the way to continue to succeed because as I took on executive level responsibilities, I couldn't spend the time having these this whole other layer of strategy that I have to have just to manage the daily relationships. And I, I became you know, a bit bitter and resentful of my of my male colleagues in particular who didn't have to spend hours every day dealing with these types of things. They could just come in and focus on their job. I mean, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but I began to resent the amount of time I had to invest in in this sort of thing. So I've, um, yeah, I think I've picked up new habits. I think it's something I've wrestled with. I think the learning is cyclical overall, but I feel like I've had some breakthrough moments in, in the last mm -hmm. five years in particular. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like this could even warrant a, a separate conversation around um, lessons learned about what does it mean to understand one's boundaries and set them, what advice you would give to somebody who's also in a... Um, because what you're saying, actually, even though like it, it echoes with me a lot, for me at this stage in my life, it's also relatively new to realize what my emotional needs are and this concept of setting boundaries and being... Uh, seeing that as 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 a normal natural thing to think to do to to keep my energy and to to feel good about myself yes i have boundaries i have to communicate them and and um yes it may upset people it may it may it may mean re rejection or, or even job loss um but 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 i have the i have my needs and i have my boundaries like everyone else has so there's nothing different uh, in a way, in a way but that's a very new thought for me as well actually I'm really fascinated about thinking at it at, uh, as a multi-level system. I think about the growth that I've experienced personally in navigating these kind of power dynamics, but really they exist on other levels as well. They exist in corporations. Um, they exist uh, at the national level. They exist at the international level. And so it's just a matter of the scale of the consequences. You know, when it's a personal relationship and the boundaries aren't set properly and the situation isn't managed, you know, that that results in broken hearts. When it happens at the corporate level, it relates in it, it results in crushed spirits. People just it takes the life out of them and they burn out. Um, when it happens in a democratic nation and it's your leader, you know, that has it causes division and strife. And when it happens uh, with the leaders like Putin or Kagami, then you find entire populations, you know, you see genocide happening, but the root causes are the same. The root causes are around, around you know, this desire for power over in, instead of, you know, a desire for power. I mean, power isn't inherently bad. Power is a, is a great thing when you can harness it for goals that um, are aligned with, with our values. Um, and so I, I would love to for any GMAppers, any alumni that would love to think more about like, how do we apply How do we learn these lessons, you know, at the different levels and apply them? Um, I think that there's an underdeveloped area there. True, true, true. Great. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation, M Mandy, and, and I, we're trying something new uh, in, in this, uh, this episode, which is asking a few, um, a few questions uh, at the end. So the, the first one I'd like to ask you is um, a, a read um, that, that has uh, changed you. So I was thinking about that. It's never just a read for me. I'm a voracious reader. I read several <laughs> books every week. It's always the intersection of a couple of ideas. So yeah. I recently read the 
the the book Do Not Disturb uh, about Paul Kagami and Rwanda by Michaela Wong. We did that as part of the, the DWM bookshelf group. At the same time that I'm reading that book, I was reading another book that I really loved and can recommend called Supernormal by Meg Jay. And mm. just to give you a flavor of, of the book, it starts out with a quote from Abigail Adams and and she she was for for those that aren't um, familiar with American history, she was the uh, the second president's wife and the mother of the sixth president of the U.S. So from the 18, late eighteenth hmm. century, and she says this quote at the beginning describes the book well: "The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with great difficulties. When a mind is raised and animated by scenes that engage the heart." then those qualities which would otherwise lay dormant wake into life and form the character of the hero and the statesman. And this just goes on in the book to talk about how the difficult experiences uh, we experience in life are actually what cultivates these amazing heroes and characters that we see. And it's only through their suffering that they develop these attributes that otherwise never come out. And it's just giving me a new lens to think about my own experiences and to really be deliberate about reflecting and processing my own experiences um, in, in order to develop. And, and of course, I'm, again, reading this at the same time as the Do Not Disturb book and just thinking, what if we could apply these types of lessons for accountability, not only in our personal lives um, and the stories that we have, but also at, at the national and international scale um, and deal with some of the challenges that we have in the world. Thanks. And then a hack or a habit that improved your life. Don't overplan your career. I have had the craziest, <laughs> most winding career path that has enabled where I'm at today. I, you know, I thought I wanted to have a career in technology and then I enjoyed the global things. And then uh, I went off and did this uh huge leadership uh, in the civil engineering arena and got a different set of skills. Uh, many times I just took jobs because a former boss said, hey, I think you'd be perfect for this. I enjoyed working with a person. So I'm like, okay, I'll take that. And I look back and without those experiences, I couldn't have moved into quantum computing because I had to develop all three of those. So I, I, my hack is not to over plan, to analyze the <laughs> next step and the next opportunity that you have in front of you and to enjoy the experience and let life, uh, there's no wrong choices on these things. <laughs> you go gather your experiences and see where they collide and take you in life. Mm, I like that. And your superpower at work? I think my superpower is being able to find the next most important thing to do and really finding joy at this intersection of being able to see uh, a strategic picture big enough to pick out the next priority, but also being tactical enough to actually catalyze action for the next most important thing. So I love that. I, I always find myself doing a variety of things, pushing the next frontier by working at this intersection and, and adaptability uh, to be able to go after the next most important thing. Right. And any question that I should ask of the next guest? You know, we have so many international experiences. I wonder if you might ask people, what is a place that has most changed or transformed them? Mm, okay. <laughs> <We'll do. laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, Mandy. Is, is there anything else you wanted to share, actually, uh, as, as we wrap up? I just wanted to thank you for having this podcast and the opportunity to have these conversations. I always eagerly await the next podcast <laughs> coming out because I just feel like I'm there in the room. You have such a talent for being able to draw out stories and to make it feel like we're sitting in the living room of one another. And, and you always find these golden threads of conversation that just draw us together as GMAP. So thank you for hosting and thank you for the conversation. Thank you very much, Mandy, and you're very, very, very welcome. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.